This evening we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do you remember when you were young and uh, you were going on a trip with a friend or spending the night at a friend's house or when you went to camp? What would your parents say right before walking out the door? Did they have a whole list of things that they wanted to say, right? They'd like, you know, have fun, be good, don't forget to brush your teeth, use your manners, don't do anything I wouldn't do, keep out of trouble. Uh, send me a postcard, all, the, all, all these things, because why do, they, why do they do this? I mean, it's the last time that your parents will have a conversation with you for a long time, and so they give you these commands in a machine gun type style so that you get them all stuck into your head before you, you leave. And Paul does something very similar to his spiritual children here at the end of 1 Thessalonians. As he wraps up this letter... He's not going to speak to them for quite a while. In fact, we know um, that it's not going to be for another year that he sends a letter to them. So, so before he gets to them in, again in person, uh, perhaps even longer. But we know it's at least a year between First and Second Thessalonians. And so Paul gives out these practical applications of the doctrinal portion that we've already looked at. Okay, so based on the fact that we are to be sanctified because the Lord is coming. That's the point of the book. Here's how we ought to live. And he's going to show us how we do that here in these verses. Verses 12 through 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. This is the Word of God. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So, there are a lot of commands here, but I think we could summarize it very simply by saying that we have a responsibility to work for the good of the church. We're going to see how that that plays out, um, but we need to work for the good of the church. Now, before we dive into the text itself, I want to say that I am thankful for expositional preaching. Okay, expositional preaching is not necessarily a verse-by-verse study of the Bible, um, but rather it's taking what is the meaning of the text and making that the main point of the sermon. Okay, so what is the meaning of the text, making that the main point? That's expositional preaching. So I could actually do a topical study from the Bible on the topic of prayer and still do it expositionally. That is, making the main point of that text on prayer the main point of my sermon. Okay, Or it could be subpoints of the sermon. But the point is not using verses just as proof text in a bad way. We're taking them out of their context and making them say something that the authors never intended. Okay, So this is expositional preaching. It's taking the meaning of the text and making that the point of, of what I'm trying to, to say. And this is the, the model that I have sought to use from the very beginning of my time here at Ambassador. Um, and what that means for my goal here at the church, if you haven't noticed, is that I'm seeking to preach through the entire Bible. And uh, in fact, we've already gone through 26 books. Six books in the morning, Joshua, Mark, Job, Revelation, Esther, and now Ephesians. And then uh, 18 books in the evening. First, second, third John, Jude, Genesis, first Thessalonians, as we're doing right now, and the 12 minor prophets. And then two on Wednesday, Proverbs, and we're finishing up Acts. Okay, so 26 books. There, there are several reasons that I want to do this. One, it makes it easy for me to plan what I'm going to preach. I like to know where I'm going, and I think it's probably helpful for you to know where I'm going. And so that's why I put out those sermon schedules so that you can know where I'm going. 
and, uh, and meet me there when we get there, right? Another reason is that I can speak about topics that I wouldn't normally address. Okay, for the most part, I'm not going to do a topical series on homosexuality. But when the issue of homosexuality comes up in Genesis 19, guess what? I'm going to address it because it's part of the point of the text. And we need to know what the Bible says about it. Or divorce. When I was going through, or when we were going through Mark, and we got to Mark chapter 10, I can tell you that I felt very uncomfortable speaking about divorce and remarriage. Not because I didn't have any convictions about it, but because those are delicate issues, aren't there? There, there are people within our church who have been involved in a divorce, right? For good and bad reasons. And so that's not the, the most popular topics to talk about. Or about honoring your pastor, like I'm going to preach about tonight. I wouldn't pick this kind of topic. But while I wouldn't choose to speak on several of these topics, that doesn't mean that they're unimportant okay? before God because God purposely put them in the Scriptures. He preserved them for us. And so expository preaching is very much like a stamp. Okay, You recognize how stamps work, right? You take the stamp and you put it into the ink and then you put it on the piece of paper that you want the imprint to be where you want the imprint to be, right? Now, if I wanted to, if I really wanted to distort that picture, I would push the stamp in at an angle, right? And just push on the various points of the stamp that I was most concerned about. And then I could put it on the picture, but that actually distorts what the stamp is meant to do. Now, here's the point is, God has given us the stamp of what He wants us to know. And my job is to give a, an accurate picture of what God wants by highlighting what God highlights and leaving to the wayside the things that God leaves to the wayside, you see? And it's not just that I'm taking time to work through the whole of Scripture and highlighting the things in the various parts of Scripture that God wants to highlight, but also I hope you recognize that I'm trying to do that within each sermon as well. That I could in any given passage, highlight something that God didn't intend to highlight in that passage. It just may be a small, minor point that was a supporting point, and I could take that and make it the main point. But when I do that, I'm actually distorting the stamp, what I'm supposed to be doing. So, that's expositional preaching. And um, and I think that's that, that's why it's so valuable to to have that sort of model. It's valuable for me, and I think... And hope it's also valuable for you. So I will honestly admit that I would never preach on verses 12 and 13 of this passage. Okay, I, I would never do that um, unless it were for unless it for it were for my responsibility to teach the whole counsel of God. I have a responsibility to teach to you what God has shown to us, and the main reason I wouldn't preach on these verses. It's become, because it comes across as what? Kind of self-serving, doesn't it? Appreciate your pastor. Right? So, But obviously, God put it in His Word for a purpose. His people apparently need to hear it because the natural tendency is not to honor your pastor. And so I'm going to preach it to you tonight but not in such a way that I have it all figured out. You know, you need to learn from me because I was the best honorer of pastors in the past. But rather, um, I'm going to show you what God has said. And this is what the, the preacher ought always to do. Okay? Not, I know what God, I, I know all this because I've experienced and I've done it perfectly, and so now you need to do it. Okay? Hopefully I'm, I'm uh, practicing what I preach, but ultimately it is. Here is what God has said. I'm showing it to you. And now, are you going to listen to what God has said to you? And so I'm basically just showing you what the Scriptures have said. And that's what I intend to do this evening. Are you willing to listen to Him and respond to Him? Alright, so practical exhortations. Practical applications of, um, of this responsibility to be sanctified so that we're ready for the coming of the Lord. 
First, practical uh, exhortations regarding your relationship with church members. Verses 12 through 15, with church members. Okay, we can break this down into two categories. First, honor your pastor. And second, uh, responsibilities of the congregation. Oh, I'm sorry. Honor your pastor. And then second, um, then your relationship with other members. Okay? So, here's how we can summarize this first point. Verses 12 and 13. Work for the good of your church by honoring your pastor. Work for the good of your church by honoring your pastor. Notice, first of all, the reason for doing this. Notice his responsibility in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who... Know, what do they do? They diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Three things. Okay, so first, they diligently labor among you. The word labor there is the word for not just an ordinary work, it's actually a toilsome work, like a hard plotting that a, a farmer would have to do. Um, it's used in 2 Timothy 2.6 in that way to describe actually a hardworking farmer. And Paul uses this analogy in, in, um, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.3. He says uh, that you need to suffer hardship, this toilsome labor for the sake of Christ. Just like that plotting farmer, this is how you ought to live, he's telling believers there. Here, Paul's using it in reference to the pastor's responsibility. That he diligently works hard, plods among you. Now, just because that is my responsibility, and I try to work hard with toilsome labor among you in understanding and teaching the Scriptures, that doesn't mean I have anything to boast about, right? Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, you know what? I labored more than all the other apostles. And yet, what does he say after that? Yet it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God that was working in me. He recognized that the strength that he had, all of the efforts that he put into the ministry ultimately came from God, Colossians 1.29, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. You see, it's not me on my own that I get all the credit, but it's God working through me. His grace is allowing me to do these things. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Hebrews 13.17 says that pastors watch over your souls. So here's one of the ways that I have a responsibility over you, according to Hebrews 13.17. I have a responsibility to watch over your souls. Aren't you thankful that someone beside yourself and perhaps somebody in your family is watching over your soul? So, diligently laboring among you, that number two, the second reason that you should honor your pastors because he has charge over you. This uh, phrase here, charge over, is the same phrase. actually comes from one Greek word that means to manage. In 1 Timothy 3, if you remember the qualifications for the pastor, he is to be able to manage his own what? Very well. His own household. Because if he can't manage his own household, how can he manage the house of God? That's the point, right? And so here's what Paul is saying in here. He's using the same sort of word. He's saying, appreciate those who manage you in the Lord. That that He has oversight over you. That that, that He's looking out for your spiritual well-being. The general direction of the church. Number three, the third reason to honor your pastor is because He instructs you. You know, the, the, the... if I would say the primary responsibility of the, pre, the pastor is to preach. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Okay, you got to always be ready to preach. Paul says to young Timothy, do it. That's your job. And so that's part of my responsibility to give you instruction as it says here at the end of verse 12. So, Paul's talking about these responsibilities for the pastor, and I can gain a lot from this text for myself, that I need to labor diligently among you, that I need to manage you well, 
Okay, that makes it more conducive for you to be able to do ministry and grow spiritually. And I need to be able to instruct you well. But what I want you to notice in the text is that this text is not directed toward me. Look at verse 12 again and notice to whom he is speaking. But we, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, and then we could just fill in the blank, your pastor, verse 13, and that you esteem him very highly in love because of his work. Okay, so who is the commandment directed at? The congregation, right? And there are specifically three responsibilities that you have in these verses. Number one, found in verse 12. Do you see it? What's the command in verse 12? Appreciate. Okay? Appreciate. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Appreciate your pastor. It just sounds bad even coming out of my mouth. Appreciate your pastor. <laughs> I didn't need an amen there. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter seven, uh, 16, last chapter in 1 Corinthians, and then verse 17. Chapter 16, verse 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Okay, the reason I pointed you to this verse is because that word there at the end of verse 18 is not talking about pastors specifically, but it's actually the same word that's used for appreciate. Do you see how it's translated at the end of verse 18? Which word do you think it is? Acknowledge, right? So the word appreciate is actually comes from the the Greek root word to know. Okay, but in the context of First Thessalonians chapter uh, five. I think the NASB translators got it right, that you need to know them in a special way, that you need to appreciate them. ESV translates it respect, that you need to have respect for them. But perhaps even better is the New International Version, which uses the word acknowledge, the same word used here in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. Okay, acknowledge. And the reason I like that translation, the NIV, you can turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5. The reason I like the NIV translation here is because it actually takes the, the word know, the root word know, and it puts it into the word that gives us the responsibility, right? Acknowledge. So you hear know in there, okay? And it also fits with the meaning that Paul is driving at here in verse 12, that you acknowledge those. That is in a positive way. Acknowledge those who diligently labor, diligently labor among you and manage you well and who... Uh, instruct you. So your first responsibility is to appreciate or acknowledge your pastor. Number two, second responsibility of the congregation is to esteem your pastor in love. See that in verse 13? And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles, because of their wonders, were esteemed highly by the people. I think that was including unbelievers, that they were esteemed highly. They were looked on upon with great favor. Now, please do not hear me say that, that I'm on the same par as an apostle, but the reason that we are to think highly uh, of our pastor, you are to think highly of your pastor, is notice, what does it say there in the text? Why? Because of their work. Well, what is their work? We already looked at it in verse 12. It was those, it, it was those three things, right? And he diligently labors among you, and he, he manages you, and He instructs you. Okay? So that's why you ought to esteem your pastor highly. Um, it's not because of my personality or how I've treated you or, or something, but, but rather you should hold me in high regard and love because of the work that I do. Okay? Not so because it's more important than your work or anything like that, but, but because, um, because of just the, the, um, the position that, that God has placed me. And when you do this, I hope you recognize that, that this is actually good for you. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that when you treat your leaders properly, and let them do their job with joy and not with grief. It says there in verse 17, Hebrews 13:17, it's actually profitable for you. 
that is profitable for your souls because one of my responsibilities is to watch out for your soul. And so if you allow me to do my job with joy and not with grief, it's profitable for you. And we recognize this, don't we? You've been in a position of leadership, I'm sure. And which atmosphere is more conducive to you being a great leader? Is it the one where the people under you are cynical of your work? Or the one where they are supportive and loving and respectful? Which one? Maybe the second one, right? Now, that's not to say that I'm free from responsibility to lead because, hey, you're not, you know, you're not treating me very well. You're not esteeming me high in love. That's not what I'm saying. Any more than a husband whose wife is, is not submissive, it doesn't mean the husband is free from his responsibility to lovingly lead, right? He still has a responsibility whether she submits or not. And, um, and so the same thing is true for me. I'm not trying to exonerate myself from any responsibility. Here's another way, the third way. Okay, this, you may not catch this, but if you recognize the context, I think Paul is, is coupling this last one here at the end of verse 13. Here's, here's a way that you can um, acknowledge me as your pastor. You can esteem me highly in love. And that is by living in peace with one another. One of the best ways that you can support the leadership in the church is to live at peace with one another. You don't know how many times, um, you know, different, uh, different problems need to be taken care of because believers just can't get along with each other, right? And if you learn to live at peace, it's one of the great ways you can support me and my work, okay? And I'm not thinking about any specific examples. You know, maybe he's got a crawl to pick tonight. Wow, you know, he couldn't watch the football game and now he's taking it out on us. Um, I'm just trying to speak generally and uh, and uh, I hope it's it's of value to you. Okay, so here's here's your responsibility to some of the members of the church, specifically to me as your pastor, to honor honor your pastor. Next, you have a responsibility to other members, verses 14 and 15. Okay, so we could summarize this. First one, work for the good of your church by supporting your pastor, honoring your pastor. Number two, work for the good of your church by serving other members. That's what verses 14 and 15 are about. Here's the ways that we can serve other members. Here are the ways. Okay, they're practical, again, rapid-fire ways. You can work for the good of your church. You do it by serving others. And, uh, you know, when you come across people within the church, you're going to come through various ways that you're going to need to deal with them and based on where they are spiritually and what kind of needs they have, and, and you recognize this. So here's a way to kind of break it down. Number one, if a person is unruly, okay, if a person is we could say idle or disobedient or unrepentant. What is your responsibility according to verse 14? Admonish them, right? Admonish the unruly. Do you see someone else in the church who is being unruly? Then you need to admonish them. The, the, the word there is warn them. It's, it's a word that's used as a military term for, for men who are not keeping rank. They're not following in line. And so you as a congregation have a responsibility to warn them. This is not directed at the pastor, okay? Although I have a responsibility to do the same, but, but this is directed at you. Second, Corinthians, or Second Thessalonians, Paul's next letter to the same city uh, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. So if someone's idle among you, you, should not even, you, you shouldn't even uh, have any conversation with them. You need to remove them from your midst. So... When a person, you see them going down that road, you need to warn them. You need to warn them. You have a responsibility to admonish them, to lead them to a place of spiritual growth. Number two, if a person is faint-hearted or discouraged, here's a really profound idea. What does Paul say to do to them? Encourage them. Okay, I say profound. I'm being you know, a little tongue-in-cheek there. Okay, if someone's discouraged... Encourage them. Do you come across people like that when you interact with one another at church from day to day, from time to time? Come across people who are discouraged? Here's your responsibility. Go talk to someone else about them and complain. No. You encourage them. What way can I 
take them to the next step spiritually, to get them out of their doldrums. Now, some of these discouragements, you say, oh, I know, I know exactly who you're talking about. No, some people are genuinely discouraged over real-life events that have taken place, right? Not just because they're immature spiritually. Some people are like that and they're discouraged easily. But, but perhaps their hopes have been dashed. Maybe a loss of a job. That's a genuine, you know, completely normal reason to be discouraged. A loss of a loved one. Or maybe even a spiritual setback. Our job is to encourage that person. Person, It should not be unusual for a church member to come to a gathering of believers discouraged and leave with their hearts strengthened and filled with hope because they've interacted with other believers who care for them. It's not just, hey, how are you doing? I hope you're, hope you're doing well. I don't want to hear about your problems. That's why I'm not going to ask specifically. It is... Are, are things okay? I mean, you look, you look like there's something going on. Is there something I can do to help? It's a genuine care for them. Number three, if a person is weak, if they're lacking spiritual strength, what ought we to do to them? Help. Help the weak. Okay. Think about it this way. If a person came into our building... There was a member of our church who was physically beaten and bleeding. Physically. How many of us would be still sitting in our pew when we saw them walk through the door? Oh, I hope they cover up those wounds and get those taken care of. Or would we be running to their aid? Right? We'd give them the necessary care that they need, make sure that they have everything that they need so they can get back on the road to recovery. Why should it be any different when someone walks into the building spiritually bleeding and wounded? Why do we quickly turn the... It's not my problem. i got plenty of my own problems, right? I don't want to think about that. Instead, we ought not to turn the other way, but help them whenever way we can. Point them to God. And the assumption in all three of these things is that we are equipped to diagnose people because here's the difference between physical and spiritual ailments. With physical ailments, we often can see them with our eyes, can't we? Okay, not always. You recognize some of you who are in the medical profession, you know you, a lot of internal uh, uh, problems and medical issues. But with spiritual ailments, they usually are not visual or visible, right? And therefore, we, have to, we can't just, just look at somebody and say, here's their spiritual problem, I need to help them. No, we have to actually carry on a conversation with them and then make a determination. Are, are they being disobedient? Are they, being, are, are they discouraged right now? Are they faint-hearted? Are they weak spiritually? Do they need a, a little bit of a boost? And the point is that no matter where that person is on the spectrum of spiritual growth, Hebrews 10.24 says that we should consider how we can encourage one another to love and good works. How can we encourage that person who is unruly, disobedient? How can we encourage that person who is discouraged, who's had a significant loss this week? How can we encourage, how can we help the person who's spiritually weak? How can we move them to a place of love and good works? Think about, I've mentioned this before, but people on a scale from A to Z. Okay, We don't have to put letters next to everybody in our church, but... but there, you, you recognize that there are people who are, let's move over here to Z, you know, that there are people who are mature, not fully mature, nobody's at Z, but, you know, they're maybe up here at S or T or something like that, S and a half. Um, and then there are some people who either are new Christians or they're, they're immature. They should be taking meat and teaching other people by now, like the writer of Hebrews says, but they're still taking the milk. And so they need to move from, you know, B and a quarter to B and a half. Or something, you know. They they just need to. You need to help move them to the next step. So, what's their spiritual weakness? Where do they need to go? And in all of this, notice the end of verse fourteen. We need to be patient with everyone. Sometimes we treat people who are dealing with real struggles like the doctor with no bedside manners. This is how we treat people with spiritual struggles sometimes. Are you kidding me? Again? 
You've come to me again. You broke a leg again. I mean, how could you possibly get the flu four times in one year? Stop coming to me. And sadly, that's how we treat people with spiritual, sometimes recurring spiritual problems instead of like the doctor who has been on the gurney and recognizes that he needed help at one time too. Right? And very well may not live the rest of his life without needing help again. Okay, the point is, how can we, in a loving way, be patient with people as they move to the next level of spirituality, to the next level of glory in this lifetime? It requires patience, doesn't it? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a real spiritual battle going on. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we are not where we are. Okay, No matter where you see yourself on this spectrum of A to Z, you are not where you are. I'm not where I am without people who were patient with us. We, were, we didn't get here overnight. We didn't get saved at A, and then all of a sudden we jumped all the way to R, did we? No, it took time, didn't it? We had some setbacks. We went to A and B, and then we back back to, to A and a half, and then back to B, and then... You know, we just keep going back and forth and eventually we got to where we are now, wherever it is. And that's the way it happens with everybody. We need to be patient with them. And recognize that God works in different ways through different people. And what, what way can we be instruments in God's hands? Number four, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate and along with that, make sure that other people are not doing that either. Verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Okay, so one, the implied command there is that we should not be repaying evil for evil. But the main command is see that no one else does it. So that means the implication is you're not doing that. You're not repaying evil for evil. You're not retaliating when someone does something against you. You're not retaliating back. Well, here, let me me give it to you. Right, but but the implication is that we're not doing that. But the main command is make sure that no one else is doing that. And why can we do that? Christians don't. There are two reasons why this is important. First, Christians don't return evil for evil because we recognize that Christ didn't return evil for evil on us. We committed a un pardonable evil against Christ. I mean, really, it should, we should have a condemnable evil, evil may be a better way to say it. And yet, when the evil was brought upon Christ, how did He respond? Not in kind. He didn't respond in returning the evil to us, but instead He ret- responded with good. Second reason this is important is because the health and the unity of the church is very much dependent on a forgiving attitude. Okay, I'm just going to be really straight with you. Be really honest. That I will probably say something to you at some point in the future that is offensive to you. I will treat you harshly at times. And everyone else in this church, if they stick around long enough, will do the same. Not because we want to, right? But because we have sin living in us. The nature of ourselves and and our our desires to be at the forefront of everything is such that we hurt people when we sin. So I'm going to do that. Other people are going to do that to you. Particularly if we spend a lot of time together. And if you are retaliatory, you can be confident that our church will be riddled with disharmony and discord. Okay, instead, we should be like Spiritual mufflers. Okay, when there are, when when there is loud noise that is coming up within the church, we ought to muffle that with love, forgiveness. I'm not going to allow that to grow and spread, am I? And to muffle that sound, so that the the unity and the harmony of the church can be maintained. Okay, so summary: all these commands seek the good of the church. You do it by Honoring your pastor, 
by serving other members. And then next, work for the good of the church by maintaining your relationship with God. Verses 16 to 22. Work for the good of the church by maintaining your relationship with God. We have three continual commands here at the very beginning, verses 16 to 18. First, rejoice continually. Rejoice continually. Philippians 4.4, you know the verse, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. We talked about this a little bit this morning. How, how hard of a command is this to obey? And this requires a change of perspective. Instead of focusing on our circumstances that are always changing, we need to focus on God and what He has promised to us and what we have in Him. And that's how we can rejoice in everything. This is amazing considering the suffering that the Thessalonians were facing at the hands of the Jews. Much of it brought about by Paul's visit to their city. Paul leaves and the trouble doesn't go away completely. They're still persecuting the people in Thessalonica and Paul's saying, listen, you need to rejoice in all these things. In everything, you need to have joy in what God is doing despite your circumstances. Second continual uh, responsibility here is pray continually. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. I, I would say pray continually. I think that's a... That's the idea here. Notice chapter 1, verse 2, because this is the same. Paul kind of um, gives us an idea of what this looks like. Chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Okay, that's the same word. That always, pray without ceasing, pray always. But think about this. Did Paul quit his job as a tent maker in order to give thanks for the Thessalonians? Did he not eat? And, or sleep in order to give thanks for the sex. No, that's not the point of it. It's not that he prays every single second of every single day, does he? But rather that he is praying continually. Or we could say another way, persistently. Just keep on praying. As often as you think about the church, as often as you uh, bring the church into your mind purposely, you pray about the church. Pray about specific people. Then thirdly, uh, be thankful continually. Verse 18 of chapter 15, and everything give thanks. Be thankful in everything. And by the way, here are some of the exhortations that you can use to do what you have as a responsibility in verse 14. Remember, admonish the unruly, uh, encourage those who are faint-hearted and help the weak. Well, here's some of the things that you can tell them to do when they're when they need to be lifted up and moved to the next level, are you rejoicing continually? Are you thankful in all things? Are you are you praying continually? Okay, don't beat it over their heads. Obviously, you want to be be um, be gentle with with your words, but but you understand what I'm saying. It's a good way to encourage other people as well. Verses 18 through 20: Be sensitive to the desires of God. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If we're concerned about God's will, we will be doing these things. And then verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Let me just go through these briefly and, and we'll look at the last few. Okay, first, do not quench the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit were a fire, to quench Him would be to pour a bucket of water on the flame that He is seeking to spread from within you. Okay, think about the Holy Spirit in that way. That He's a flame of fire within you wanting to spread to other people and grow in them. To quench Him would be to pour a bucket of water on Him with our, we could say, with our sin, right? We're not allowing Him to do what He intends to do in our lives. In our lives. And so the opposite of, of that, would, instead of saying, do not quench the Spirit, is a phrase that I often use, and that is, be complicit with the Spirit. Allow Him to do what He wants to do, what He desires to do in you. Don't quench the Spirit. And so, simple way of thinking about that is, you know, what does the Spirit want to do in my life? Well, long term, what is He making you into, right? Isn't He metamorphosizing you? 2 Corinthians 3.18 Changing, that's the word, metamorphosizing. The, he's changing you into the image of Christ. So if that's what the Spirit wants to do in me, Am I allowing Him or am I resisting Him? Okay, The Spirit wants to develop fruit in me. 
Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. So if He wants to develop fruit in me, am I being complicit with that or am I resisting Him? Are we putting out the flame? Number, uh, The next one here in verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. Dr. McCune defines this as the supernatural ability to discern a true prophecy from a false one when direct revelation was being employed. So, in the early church, in the time of transition, they had a responsibility to determine which was direct and, and uh, divine revelation and which was not. Okay. Now, we obviously don't have that responsibility, but I think we can make an application from this, can't we? Even though we don't have a, an explicit command that people are you know, trying to speak direct revelation, rather, let's think about it more generally. When God is revealing Himself to us through His Word, are we despising it? Are we despising God's Word to us? Um, or, or are we accepting it? Next, verse 21, be discerning. Be discerning, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Be discerning. There's all sorts of information that we have to gather or that we sometimes automatically gather and we have to make an evaluation of it, don't we? And so what Paul is saying is all this information, don't just accept it blindly and, oh, that must be truth. You know, someone says they're a Christian, they must be a Christian or, you know... Things going on in our country, it must be, whatever. But the point is, examine it carefully and then cling to what is good and get rid of the rest. Is it, is it good biblical counsel? Or let's think about it on a church level. Someone's giving to you counsel, okay, not, not in a formal way, but an informal way like we've been talking about, you know, just admonishing and encouraging you. And is it something that is biblical? If it is, hold fast to it and cling to it. If it's not, then discard it. Okay, reject it. Finally, verse 22, be pure. Be pure. Now, the text here says, abstain from every form of evil, but if you look in the margin, it says it could be every appearance of evil. In fact, that word is used in most of the rest of the New Testament to, and, and it is translated as appearance if you were to look up that word. But I've heard this verse used a hundred times to outlaw everything from music to movie theaters to clothing styles. Now, some of these things may be wrong or unwise to participate in, but if they are, um, we need to ask the question, is this the verse that we need to use as support for for not doing those things or for do, for um, for participating in those Things. Here's a big argument that I heard growing up just as an example. Christians can't go to movie theaters because people may think they're going to a rated R movie, even though they're not, and the text of Scripture says, avoid all what? Appearance of evil. So you don't want to appear to be evil, so don't go to movie theaters. Now, it may very well be wrong or have been wrong to go to movie theaters at that time, but that's not the verse to use to prove that it's wrong. Okay, That's what I'm trying to say. The problem with forcing other people to have the same convictions as you, maybe you have a conviction that you shouldn't go to the movie theaters. And that might be a good one. Okay, But if you force other people to do it without clear biblical support, then you actually lose your integrity when you speak to them about things that are actually clear in the Scriptures. okay. In other words, if we are careless with how we use the Bible as a proof text in order to eliminate all of our pet peeves, okay, well, here's this verse and here's that verse, even though none of those verses mean those things, then we effectively are like the boy who cried wolf. Because when we go to talk to somebody about something that is clearly in the Scriptures, this is the way you ought to live. You know what that person says who is mature enough to understand that this text does not mean that? They say, well, I'm not going to listen to you at all because now obviously um, that, that actually shows some immaturity that they're not willing to listen at all. But, but when they see through shallow arguments like the one that's laid out there in ver verse 22 from a poor translation, then it actually hinders your ability to speak on things that are clear 
and are clearly wrong in the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. Instead, this word should be translated as it is there. Abstain from every form of evil. And you, you may not be convinced on that. You say, well, just because the New American Standard translated that and maybe some other translations, I don't buy it. But let me, let me let you think about it in this way. If that verse really said and meant we need to avoid all appearance of evil, could Jesus have ever eaten with tax collectors and sinners? Right? Could He ever have had a conversation with a prostitute? Do you see? That's not what the text is saying. We know from the rest of Scripture that that's not what the text is saying. So a better way to put this is, I think the way that we have it here in the New American Standard and other translations, abstain from not every appearance, but every form of evil. That's why I call it be being pure. Here's one of the ways that you serve the church. You work for the good of the church. You are pure personally. Not that you're worried about what everybody else is going to say when you do certain things. Well, I want to make sure I appear right. But they actually do right. That's more important. We'd spend more time thinking about that. I think we would uh, get ourselves in a lot less problems personally and we would have more integrity when we speak about things that are clear in the Scripture. Two applications in closing, all right? I know we, we kind of breeze through this really quickly. Um, main point is to work for the good of the church. So here's the first application. Recognize your corporate responsibility. What I didn't mention as we went through each of these is that these are all imperatives. You know what an imperative is? It's a command. Okay? These are all commands in, in this text. Or I didn't count them up, but there are several of them. And these commands are all in the Greek language in the plural form. What does that tell us? Okay? It doesn't say you individually okay, pray without ceasing. You individually give thanks and everything. But actually, it is you as a church pray without ceasing. You as a church do not despise prophetic utterances. Okay, and so that's why I say recognize your corporate responsibility. Obviously, you understand that we can't obey this corporately if we're not doing it individually. But the point is that we should think about ourselves less as individual Christians and more as Christians that are a part of a body. That I have a corporate responsibility to maintain purity, to grow in my relationship with, the, with God, to provide for the needs of others, move them to the next level of spirituality, to honor my pastor. Okay? This is, this is part of our corporate responsibility. Not just individual, hey, you, 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 but all of us need to, to recognize our responsibility to serve the needs of the church, to work for the good of the church. Second exhortation is actually just a summarization of what we've seen, and that is to serve the church. Serve the church. You serve the church by honoring your pastor. You serve the church by, by helping the, the spiritual needs of the congregation and by maintaining your relationship with God. And the implication in all of this is that we have to care about other people. We have to care about God's work in this place. Do you care for people? I heard a quotation this week from Tommy Lasorda. He was a longtime Los Angeles Dodgers uh, manager. He said, I never talk about my problems. And he's, he, he jokes. He, he's got a lot of witty statements that he's made. He says, I never talk about my problems, and I'll tell you why. I think 80% of the people don't care about other people's problems and the other 20% are happy to hear about them. I mean, that's kind of comical, right? 80% don't care and the other 20% are happy that you have problems. But that should not be the way it is with Christians. We, we, should, we should not be fearful of coming to the assembly and walking away with no one ever caring. We should look forward to, to having our needs cared for, but 
but I want to turn that because if we come in that way, always looking for to be fed, to be cared for, we're going to we're, we're going to miss the point. We're not going to be helpful. Instead, we need to look forward to to caring for other people's needs. So if you come to church with a laundry list of problems that you want to pass off to others and help them carry your load, then you are not seeking to serve the body. You just want people to, to, to take misery in your misery. And that's not helpful for the church. You're not serving the church by passing off all your problems. Think about this for a minute. If you are a consumer when you come to church, imagine what the church would be like if everyone were like you. If all you're doing is wanting people to give, 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 what happens if everybody's like that? What if happens if, if people don't come actually looking to care for those needs? And we don't have a body at all. Instead, we should come to the gathered assembly with, think about it this way, a laundry list of ways that we can serve other people because we've been thinking about them throughout the week. We've been praying for them. We've been concerned about them genuinely. What way can I help this person who's struggling because of a loss or because they're weak or they're faint-hearted or they're discouraged or they're unruly? What can I do for them? Not, can I get all my needs met? And do you know what happens a lot of times when you come with that attitude? I have this list of things that I want to do to help other people. As you go away, feel like you are so full and you have all your needs met because you've given. It's better to, as Jesus said, give than to receive. Serve the church by fulfilling your responsibilities within the body of Christ. Serve the church by working for the good of the church. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're thankful that You were merciful to us and that You did not return on us evil for evil, but instead You returned evil for good. And because of that, we can be forgiving people. We can overlook the, the, the offenses against us, the people who have mistreated us or have not been very tactful in the way that they've said things. They're like the doctors with no bedside manner sometimes to us. But we can be forgiving of that because we know that, that, that You have been merciful to us and so we can show mercy to other people. And really, it's the very least that we can do. Help us to fulfill our responsibilities to work for the good of this church. And ultimately, align ourselves with Your desire to make Your name known and to exalt Jesus Christ, our Savior, who forevermore will reign over all the earth, and His kingdom will have no end. We praise You for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.